We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we have the first episode of The Great Energy Transition, a new series from Intelligence Squared in partnership with Commons. Right now, leaders and representatives from around the world are gathering in Egypt for COP27 to agree on policies to limit global temperature rises and adapt to impacts associated with climate change and existential crisis which we are all facing. So in today's episode, we're asking, what is happening between now and 2030 to achieve net zero? We're joined on this episode by Jonathan Wood, Vice President of Engineering at Cummins, Lucy Yu, CEO of Octopus Energy's Centre for Net Zero, and Dr. Chris Grieg, Leading Researcher on Net Zero Energy Transitions at Princeton University. To find out more about Cummins, please visit Cummins.com. Our host for the series is physicist and broadcaster Helen Chersky. Here's Helen with more. Hello and welcome to The Great Energy Transition, a new series from Intelligence Squared in partnership with Cummins. And it's all about bringing together leading voices to discuss the really big questions around the environment, energy and the road to net zero. My name's Helen Chersky. I'm hosting and we've got three topics coming up. We're going to cover one of them today, and that is what's happening between now and 2030 to achieve net zero. In the two coming episodes, discussions will be covering what needs to happen between 2030 and 2050 
and then beyond that, the role of corporations in the energy transition. So we're following it all the way through and today we're focusing on what's happening before 2030. Now, we all know that COP27 is just around the corner and we also know that there's a better world out there. There's a world where we don't have to burn fossil fuels, where we don't have to generate so much air pollution in order to meet our basic needs, where things are cheaper and fairer and we're not destroying our entire planetary system for just so we can keep in the long term, just so we can keep using particular technologies in the short term. It's all out there, this better future. But it's not just a possibility. We know now that getting there is an urgent challenge. And in order to prevent the worst climate disasters, you know, we hear these statistics all the time. Net zero needs to be reached by 2050. But if you ask any climate scientists, they'll say the sooner we make that transition, the better it's all going to be. Um, and, you know, global emissions need to fall 45 percent by 2030. And that is a significant challenge. But a lot of the foundation already exists. Now it's time for the hard work of making it happen. So today we're going to be focusing on the immediate challenge. What needs to happen before 2030? 30, just the next eight years. It's not far ahead. So here's how it's all going to work. We'll hear from each of our expert speakers. We have three of them about their priorities and their insights as they look ahead to this gigantic task and the remaking of the American and global economy. And then we'll have a discussion between ourselves. And after that, you get to ask your questions. Now, you can actually start on that now. There's a, you should be able to see a Q&A button. If you click on that, you can put your question and uh, do include your name and perhaps where you're from. We'd love to know. Um, and then we'll read the questions out at the end in that um, question section section at the end. So you can be asking questions whenever they occur to you on the way through. So do, do start submitting questions as soon as you're ready to. So let's start off and uh, meet our speakers. We've got Dr. Chris Gregg. He's the leading researcher on decarbonisation and net zero energy transitions at Princeton University. He came into academia after almost three decades in industry and his research focus is identifying and overcoming the challenges of rapid decarbonisation. And Recently and very significantly, he co-led Princeton's influential Net Zero America study, which came out in 2021 uh, and is currently co-leading similar efforts in Australia and Asia. And then our second panellist is Lucy Yu. She's the CEO at Octopus Energy's Centre for Net Zero, which is a research unit leading pioneering research to make the future energy system a reality. She's got decades of experience building tech ventures and developing tech policy and also in influencing regulation for the UK government the European Commission and the UN. And last but certainly not least, we have Jonathan Wood, who is the Vice President of New Power Engineering at Cummins, which is a Fortune 150 global power technology company. He works to develop the company's innovations in its alternative power business, uh, which houses its electrified power, fuel cell and hydrogen technologies. And he's worked at Cummins for 27 years, most recently as the Vice President for Components Engineering. So this is our expert panel. We clearly have lots and lots to talk about. But let's get started perhaps with a little bit of scene setting. So it's a familiar thing, Chris, but perhaps you could just lay out what exactly, and briefly if you would, what exactly is net zero and why does it matter? Yeah, thanks, Helen. So I think for a long time we've realised that climate change was was something that was causing a lot of problems with the earth and that we had to do something. And we, we were setting our targets like keep below two degrees C of temperature rise or, or later 1.5 degrees C. And this was really confusing. You know, how do you allocate this temperature target amongst different actors, whether they be states, nations or companies or individuals? And so the transition to a kind of a net zero kind of uh, narrative for me has made it 
real and tangible for everybody. So whether you're a company, a city, a nation, you set yourself a target of net zero, you know exactly what you have to do in terms of your net emissions. The next challenge is what's the right kind of energy mix and set of technologies that would get you there. So so I think it's really set ourselves a tangible target. Uh, and that's why I think it's really important. Now, the net zero study at Princeton, uh, which you co-led, was, was really influential because it really dug into the details. Like, you know, you've made the point for the slogan, I guess, you know, here's an easy target, net zero, go. But then, of course, you know, the devil is all in the detail. And, and that was what this report dug into. And, you know, and it was it was read because people were like, oh, well, what does this look like? And I was just curious about, you know, for you, having done all that work, what do you think the most significant or surprising outcomes of that report were in terms of what was actually in the report? Yeah, I think the the most eye-catching thing is the sheer speed and scale at which you have to build assets and infrastructure. We've never seen anything parallel to this in the history of humankind, right? So it's just a massive infrastructure building program. And with that comes a massive capital mobilisation challenge, a massive workforce mobilisation challenge. And because we are moving to resources which are let's say, low operating cost and relatively free, but they take up a lot of land. So, you know, it's going to create new and interesting ways that we're interacting with the natural environments. Yes, we're going to overcome climate change in time, but but there's going to be a whole new range of challenges with the natural environment, with communities. And I think this challenge of putting capital to work at a rate we haven't done before and the sheer amount of supply chain uh, upheaval, infrastructure development, etc. I, I think we're in a real roller coaster of the next three decades. And that to me was the most surprising thing. The second most surprising thing is that we can get there without energy services having to cost more than they do today as a percentage of GDP. So that was kind of good news. Um, but but really the eye-catching thing was the, was the, the sheer scale and speed at which we have to move. It is it is a big thing, but I think it's great, as you say, to see it as an opportunity. You know, this is an opportunity to have something better rather than just being stuck with this thing that doesn't work. Okay, so let's let's meet our other panelists. Um Lucy, I wanted to come to you next and you know, Centre for Net Zero, perhaps that's a phrase, you know, not quite familiar for, for some of our audience. Could you explain what it does and, and how it does it? Yeah, of course. So uh, we're a not-for-profit research unit. We're part of the Octopus Energy Group. Our research is focused on delivering the future energy system by providing important evidence and insights to policymakers, to energy and climate leaders and to city leaders. And a lot of our research is is aimed at developing and sharing models and tools. But Crucially, those are models and tools that draw on real-world field trials with Octopus Energy customers um, and the insights about real-world behaviours that we obtain from those trials. We can run these field trials at almost unprecedented scale. So last winter, Octopus Energy ran a UK field trial called the Big Dirty Turndown. That was with over 100,000 domestic customers. Um, And that trial offered customers different forms of incentive to reduce their energy consumption or move it away from periods when the grid was particularly carbon intensive. 
Examples of some of the models and tools that we're currently developing, uh, Faraday, which is an API and a web-based tool which models energy consumption profiles for different target populations under different conditions. It's a very important tool for the likes of distribution system operators, those who are thinking about grid constraints, grid infrastructure, trying to plan for the future. Uh, Crowdflex, which uses field trials to better understand and model the amount of flexibility that could be available to the power system at any point in time from households changing their energy consumption in response to different external signals or incentives. And baselining, which is work that we're doing to understand um, how to more accurately, uh, more accurate ways to establish a baseline or a counterfactual uh, for a given customer's energy consumption in the absence of any external signals. And this is very important because that baseline and the ability to, to measure a delta or a difference um, could become very important for things like uh, the greenhouse gas protocols, development of scope for um, or avoided emissions. All of these models and tools account for adoption of low carbon technologies by households. Um, so Chris talked about the, the speed and the scale of some of these things. I think one of the things that's most striking is that the speed and the scale at which ordinary households will need to adopt different technologies than they might have today. So we're particularly interested in things like electric vehicles, heat pumps, solar, home batteries. Um, and we're interested in how we can expect households to use these technologies in ways that are compatible with their lifestyles. And we think this is important because uh, the future isn't some abstract concept that will just happen to us. It's something that we can actively create. But we need to make sure that we're actively creating it by making decisions that are not only grounded in theory, but are also rooted in what we understand about people's real world lives. And um, in the fullness of time, we expect that more and more intelligent automation will apply to how these technologies are used. Um, and how they support the wider power system. But it's important that in order for public acceptance, public support, that's an automation that really understands people's lifestyles. Maybe just to say finally, the decisions that we take now and in the next decade will have very important consequences for the cost and, and the shape of future infrastructure, such as where and um, how much transmission and distribution uh, networks we need to build, how markets should be allowed or encouraged to develop and, and what that means for different people's rights and responsibilities or different organisations' rights and responsibilities. And that, of course, has implications for very important matters like equity and justice. And just very briefly, how how does the information you, because it sounds like, you know, the, this is clearly important research, these are necessary things to know. Who is interested in who's using it? You know, do you find it, do you find that sort of government and policymakers are most interested? Is it businesses? Is it consumers themselves? Like, where is all this feeding into? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. I think it's a, a mix of all of those things. So certainly, uh, governments, policymakers, we talk to on a very regular basis. We're involved in a lot of different um, conversations on that front. Uh, we do publish our research openly. So earlier this year, for instance, we, we published actually a bespoke model we made, which was uh, uh, an agent-based model where we, ex uh, we simulated different policy interventions to look at which combinations of interventions might meet the UK government's target for annual heat pump installations. Uh, we published that report called Hitting the Target and the code behind it on GitHub, so that's openly available. Uh, we try to do this with as much of our work as possible. We find, though, that it's uh, it's not just governments, it's not just policymakers. We have a lot of interest um, from those responsible for planning uh, where additional grid might need to be built. 
Um, so certainly transmission network operators, distribution system operators, um, others in industry, and, and maybe others developing some of these, these technologies that I'm talking about as well. So um, all of those, uh, along with just other academics uh, who may want to use some of our tools for their own research questions. Well, I'm sure the question of transparency coming along, like the speed of change is very interesting because I think it almost forces transparency because then, because everybody needs to do everything all at once and you can't afford a top-down structure. Let's come to Jonathan then. And you know, Jonathan, companies like Cummings, a big transition like this doesn't happen without corporations, some corporations being on board. I guess the ones that don't get on board just get left left in the dust. But um, what are, specifically for Cummings and the way you look at the world, what are your sustainability goals for 2030? Yeah, so it's a great question. So, you know, we're in this, what we call destination zero. So we're heading towards destination zero. We realise that our industry is completely changing. It's completely changing and evolving. And, and we're managing through this transition. So we're really driving towards, you know, the net zero, you know, as we aim for 2050, we've made those commitments for 2050. But for 2030, we provide power solutions and power system solutions to customers that run businesses that that need to you know use vehicles use our applications use our industrial power to manage their businesses to be sustainable as well so they're meeting their multiple goals so we have a number of initiatives that we're driving at heading towards the destination zero reducing reducing the um, greenhouse gas emissions from our products you know driving out greenhouse gas reductions from our products and reducing those also, you know, scope three greenhouse gases from all our facilities, our operations, all of those were driving reductions in those um, through 2030 to be at net zero by 2050, looking at our sites and how we drive out the operational expense of our sites. But the reality is most of our carbon emissions are from our products. So a lot of our focus actually is on our products because we make diesel engines, you know, for over 100 years, we've made diesel engines natural gas engines. And we're now driving towards a developing zero carbon solutions that we can actively roll out into the market to start to shift that. But also focusing on how do we actually reduce the emissions and the carbon from our products that we're selling today? Because we're going through this transition where we'll have two paths. One is, which is my job, is innovating and bringing in new technologies that are zero carbon, like fuel cells and batteries and other and you know, those are the low emission applications, but also taking out carbon from our existing products. So making our internal combustion engine products more fuel efficient, um, driving goals to reduce uh, efficient, reduce the fuel uh, used by those products and, and having a dual approach to enable us to manage through this. What is going to be this sort of tough transition as we go from here through to 2030, where zero emission products are going to take time to be economically viable, infrastructure needs to be put in place, investments need to be made at a really massive scale to make them viable. We're managing that on, on sort of two fronts. You know, one is to bring in those new technologies, prove them out, test them, get them into real market, get them to real customers. But then in parallel, really driving down the emissions from our sites, our facilities and our, and our products that are actually out there in the field right now. Well, I'd just like to pick up on one point there, because actually one of the things I think that's especially interesting for companies like Cummins is that, you know, there's all the carbon burned if your, if your you know, technology goes out into the world. But actually the business of building things, supply chains, factories, sort of what's called embodied carbon of the object. But actually it's it's the entire system. It's like the internal system of the company. And is that a bit as big a challenge for you as the technology itself? Or is, the, is that relatively straightforward, you think, to actually have when you're producing producing things to use systems that actually use this new thinking as well? 
I wouldn't say one is harder or easier than the other. They both represent a, a very unique challenge. And of course, we have global plants and facilities all around the world. And so it brings different opportunities to enable to reduce our, our carbon footprint around the world. I'll give one example. You know, we've recently um, installed solar in our facilities in India. You know, solar in India is, um, you know, it's really low cost. It's really effective. You get very high efficiency from it if the sun shines a lot in India. So you can drive down, there's different programs you can do in different regions to really drive down the carbon footprint of our facilities. Your point about supply chains is a really good one because when we think about carbon footprint as well, we've got to think about what we call well to wheels. You can't just think about the carbon footprint of the vehicle or the system or the facility. You've got to look at the entire from the well to the wheel and how you think about carbon reduction for products on our facilities. But but our big challenge, you know, if you looked at our carbon, you know, our carbon footprint, you know, it is hugely about our products. You know, that is a big part of what of what we do. We produce a lot of internal combustion engine products. And, and so a, a very heavy focus for us is on how we reduce and sorry, how we reduce the carbon footprint, how we improve the efficiency. And we've got to make those products commercially viable because customers who buy our products are running their businesses. So they're running their businesses. They they need those products to be, yes, sustainable, but also commercially viable, available, can be supported with an infrastructure. And so they go through all those thoughts and when they make those choices about the products they buy. And so our role is to is to bring that technology to start to make it viable and to work with governments and and others to drive you know the adoption of the of the infrastructure that that makes those products viable which will be the key to you know decarbonizing you know a large part of our products awesome well well now we've we've met you all we will broaden out discussion a bit and i i wanted to actually start on the time scales because so i am not a big fan of this kind of 12 years to save the world language because i think it makes it sound like you know you want to tidy up the house before your relatives come to visit next weekend maybe you could do it today maybe you could do it on friday maybe you could do it 3 minutes before they turn up and actually that's not what we're facing. We're facing a situation where the sooner we do things, the better it all gets. So it does make a difference whether you do it now or, or next year. Um, but Chris, I'm interested in the, you know, from your point of view, when it comes to between the time between now and 2030, as far as you're concerned, what are the priorities here? Look, clearly, clearly we've got to accelerate the expansion of wind and solar on electricity supplies. So I'll focus first on the supply side. Wind and solar is going to do the heavy lifting during this decade, without a doubt. Um, and we're going to need to expand some demand-side technologies like electric vehicles, like household heating, like industrial efficiency, uh, because, you know, that's going to make the task a lot easier if we get the demand side moving along as well. Uh, and with increasing wind and solar, we're going to have to make sure we have the batteries and the firm other firm generation sources that can can maintain stability with these variable resources. But, you know, we can't just focus on 2030 because there's 2031 is the very year after and there's a whole range of technologies that we are counting on to expand post-2030. And we have to work on those this decade if they're going to have a chance of meeting the task ahead. It's things like CO2 capture and storage otherwise known as CCS, is, is large expectations for CCS, mostly post-2030. Uh, and, and I think the other thing that we've got to think hard about is infrastructure, like, uh, and you know, enabling infrastructure like transmission and distribution systems. As we increase the electric vehicles and, and electric uh, heating in households, we're going to 
have to expand substantially the distribution networks. And we're going to, with, with wind and solar, because it is sort of more dispersed across the landscape, we're going to need large investments in transmission. And these are hard investments to do, right? They're long to permit. They're long to uh, get communities behind. And when you think about 2030, it's eight years away. And so it can take you at least a decade to permit wind and solar. And the same will be true for things like um, like CCS. You know, if we want to be building out CCS in, in the 2030s, we need to start the permitting process now. And so, you know, I, I don't think there's any stone you can leave unturned this decade. But what, what is visible to us, what's coming out of the ground as operating assets, is going to be wind, solar, batteries, electric vehicles, uh, and some transmission. And that's going to look like it's done all the work, but but we can't leave those other things behind. And do you see a, a sort of frustration now in, you know, so certainly for domestic solar, for example, but also in a lot of, you know, there are, there are supply chain issues. Everyone's kind of gone, oh, oh, okay, we want some solar panels and they can't buy them because the factories aren't making enough, the material, you know, the, the whole thing hasn't scaled up enough. Are you worried at all that there might be this frustration that we have this couple of years now where everyone's all enthusiastic, like, okay, let's do this. And then they kind of get to, oh, well, we can't, you know, I can't buy it. I can't get one. I've got, I'm in a waiting, you know, I'm in a queue for an electric car that's maybe six months or something. Do you think we risk kind of taking the edge off it a bit because that we can't make use of that initial rush of enthusiasm just because, you know, the system isn't quite with us yet? Look, I, I think supply chain constraints are inevitable. There's just so much to do so quickly. And one of my frustrations is not whether we'll become frustrated. Um, I'm frustrated that governments don't see their role as a kind of a master planner coordinator. Supply chain constraints in a net zero transition are inevitable. And so we've got to learn to coordinate and sequence the expansion of supply chains, the expansion of infrastructure, and the expansion of these assets. It's, it's, it's too easy for us to say, all we need to do is build wind and solar. It's, there's so much more. There, there's all of the manufacturing facilities. There's the critical minerals. The supply chain is just a very complex thing. And it, like the, like the assets themselves, has its own long lead time and permitting constraints. So yeah, look, I I think I think we are at risk of not facing up to the complete challenge, not coordinating our response, and running out of steam. And so you know that's why I think it's vital that governments really get hands on and get involved in this. I just wanted to just sort of uh, sort of build on that point a little bit. I think the coordination of the supply chain is a really really important point. Um, because the worst thing you could do, or some of the bad things you could do, is go too too slow in some areas, too fast in another. I, I use an example of if you don't build out renewable energy fast enough and keep increasing your production of hydrogen, as an example, you know, which is be, you know fuel for for the future and how we think about it in terms of decarbonisation. But if you don't build out your renewables and keep making hydrogen from fossil fuels, that's a really bad outcome, right? It's a really bad outcome. Yes, we'll have hydrogen and be able to use it in fuel cells and other things, but it's a bad outcome because you're making it from, from a fossil fuel. So this whole sort of sequencing of the supply chain, I think is just incredibly important as we think through this, this transition. So I just wanted to add that point. Great, thank you. Um, and Lucy, I was interested in your your perspective on the on the eight years thing, because what you were talking about before was, you know, partly at least 
partly social science research, you know, how do people respond to things? Because it's not just, you know, we all like to think that we're logical actors and that we do what we should rationally do. And of course, that's complete nonsense. We don't at all, almost never. Um, so what, what do you see in the sort of priorities for the next eight years in terms of shifting minds as well as spreadsheets? Yeah, there's um, probably a few a few things to, to say there. I mean, maybe building on some of Chris's comments, every sector needs to decarbonize. But when you look at those sectors that are really, really critical, uh, you see transport and you see uh, heating, ventilation, and cooling of buildings. But when you unpack those, actually, you see that the, the, the biggest contributions in terms of emissions don't come from business and industry, but they come from residential in the heating, ventilation, cooling sector. And then for transport, you see that it comes not from aviation and shipping, but actually it comes from roads, transport. And when you unpack that, it comes from privately owned vehicles. So what I'm saying here is that actually it, it is individual households that will need to make some big, big shifts. And this really feeds to your point, Helen, there's some mindset changes that need to go on here. People uh, need to make decisions to um, to change to, to different uh, and newer technologies. Now, we're in quite a privileged position in some ways in that these technologies are not so new that they don't exist yet. These aren't, we aren't, we aren't talking about things that need to be invented. They're already here. They're already with us. I think one of the things that is very important here, and uh, I'm really pleased to see some stuff come out in the Inflation Reduction Act in the, in the US to support this, but is um, means of finance um, that can help households to purchase these technologies. Some of them have very high upfront costs. Um, so really thinking about um, ways that we can help households with those costs. I talked earlier about some of the work that we're doing on, on baselining household consumption, the importance of having a kind of an industry agreed counterfactual for understanding the flexibility that a household might provide through any low carbon technologies that it owns. If we can do that, and we can measure that, then we can quantify avoided emissions. And that could have a value in the offset market. If we can find a way to integrate that value, to track it right back into the financing of those low carbon technologies, then we may have some interesting new commercial models that can open up. So I think the, the financing, particularly for individual households, um, is critical. And just also building on um, both Chris and Jonathan's points, they talked about um, a lot of discussion about supply chain. I also think it's important to talk about the skills constraints here. I talked about our hitting the target piece of modelling, our agent-based model, in which we simulated different interventions to see uh, which of those might meet the government, the UK government's target for 600,000 heat pump installations per year by 2028. We did find some scenarios in our modelling in which uh, we modelled that demand would be sufficient to hit that target, but actually it would be constrained in the short to medium term by lack of trained installers. Um, so we had some scenarios in which we said between 2025 and 2027, we will need another 30,000 trained heat pump installers. It sounds like a large number. It's not really when you put it in the context of how many uh, gas registered uh, boiler installers we have in the UK, which is about 120,000. So we're really talking about potentially retraining a quarter of that number by 2025 to 2027. Um, but obviously, um, you know, we, we need to be taking the right decisions and doing the right things now to retrain those people. I think there is huge potential for green jobs growth here, but only if we make the right decisions in the next year or so. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. Our estimate across the whole energy economy for the US was a two to three fold increase in jobs across the energy economy. 
uh, by 2050. That is a tremendous challenge to find those people, especially now in a fully employed economy. I mean, I think people is going to be a critical constraint. And of course, it takes not only time to retrain people, but they need to have a salary while they're retraining in order, you know, in order to live while they're doing it. We could delve so deeply into all of these things. But let's move on. I want to pick up on something Lucy said about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which has these enormous numbers attached to it. You know, I think $738 billion and it's authorised $391 billion of that in, in spending on energy and climate change. So potentially, this sounds like a huge lever. Now, obviously, it was also people had bigger ambitions for it. And, you know, it, it's obviously better that something happened rather than nothing, but it wasn't all of the everything that some people were hoping for. So I'm interested in your opinions on how big a lever is this? How much is it going to shift? And what perhaps isn't going to be done by this act, but might need to be done by something else? Well, maybe I'll start just from the context of how we're thinking about it in, in Cummins. Firstly, it's hugely welcome. You know, when I think about technology adoption um, in some of these markets that we serve that are perhaps more challenging to obey, I think about three aspects of this. There's one, which is, do we have the product offering? Is there the infrastructure and how do you get to a, a cost, I call it cost parity, because those are the three things that really matter as you start to really try to accelerate adoption rates. So what the Inflation Reduction Act has, has done um, and also you know, the infrastructure bill has really helped sort of push and incentivize the building out of infrastructure, the adoption of clean um, energy vehicles, whether that's a battery, um, EV, electric vehicle, or a fuel cell electric vehicle. It also supports um, you know, clean fuel options. It gives sort of that financial impetus and drive to make the investment, to actually convert, convert investments into real projects and real execution. That can only help adoption rates because otherwise constantly these, these zero emission, these zero carbon solutions are always playing that challenge of how do they compete on cost? How, how do they compete in terms of infrastructure? And so I think government help in this way is, is hugely valuable, I think, in terms of making those steps forward. But I'll, I'll let others comment. Yeah, I'm happy to have a go. I, I, I think, uh, likewise, I mean, there's incentives across, you know, most of the critical supply side technologies and the demand side technologies. There's even uh, incentives to increase local manufacturing, whether it be EVs, batteries, solar panels, etc. One of the weaknesses, and it's an unintended, you know, it's a well-meaning policy that I think an unintended weakness is, is has created supply chain constraints. You only get the full extent of benefits if you're buying American-made, employing union labour with a certain level of apprenticeship training programs. And these are all terrific, like social policies. On the other hand, they actually have the ability to cause us to get off, you know, offside with some of our other trading partners who, with whom we are well aligned. I mean, we've got to remember part of this was about China proofing America. You know, we want to make sure we don't Europe proof and Australia proof and some of the the allies that we've had forever. And so, you know, if I wanted to order an electric vehicle in the US today, I would probably be waiting and get the and get the incentive. I would probably be waiting for eighteen months for my vehicle. Um, and and so, you know, I, I think I think it will undoubtedly stimulate the uptake of some of some of these technologies, and it will it's very welcome, as Jonathan says. I just think we, we've got to be careful we don't lose the, the real power of what this could have been because it slows us down 
around conditionality. Very quickly, Lucy, because we've got so much more to talk about. Actually, just before that, so we are not quite, quite time at audience question time yet. But um, just to remind the audience that you can be asking questions now. There's a Q&A tab that you can click on. Do put your question in there. Tell us your name. Tell us where you're from. You can be doing that now. We will come to those questions in just a couple of minutes. Lucy, if you could be quick, if you've got thoughts on the Infrastructure Reduction Act, Inflation Reduction Act, we definitely don't want an Infrastructure Reduction Act, at least not as simply as that. Uh, we want a Polluting Infrastructure Reduction Act. But I've got one quick question before we get to questions. But yes, so very quickly, if you would, on, on that. Yeah, act. sure. I, well, I suspect uh, both Chris and Jonathan are far more familiar with the, the detailed provisions of the Act. But um, what I will say, um, of course, any anything of this nature is very, very welcome to see, uh, even if it's not quite perfect in its execution. Um, very comprehensive, I think, from what I've seen, um, which is certainly um, reassuring. I was particularly pleased to see some of the finance provisions that are in there, particularly around providing the finance to, to sufficiently de-risk projects that might not otherwise have been funded um, without that finance. And also to see, although I'm not familiar with the precise, the finer details of this, um, I think there was a commitment to provide around $3 billion, I think, to change the entire fleet of the US Postal Service to EVs. I think that could be very interesting in terms of understanding how large uh, owned and operated fleets could play a role in the future energy system. You know, I love that example. So I know um, many of our audience will be American, but just for your information, in the UK, when I was a kid, there were these little vans that went around developing milk. And this is several decades ago now, and they were all electric. And I love the idea that it's kind of come around again. Okay. Um, so just very briefly, before we get to audience questions now, different type of question, perhaps. So there are a lot of problems in the world and um, they all intersect. You know, it's not just the case that we can fix energy or we can fix transport and then we can just not touch anything else. You know, there's an opportunity here to connect in with perhaps, you know, dealing with geopolitical issues and things like equality and how communities work. There's all these other things that, you know, if you're going to make big changes, it seems like you might as well at least try and do it in a good way for everybody, not just for your narrow issues. How do you see these, these big Big goals, you know, eight years to 2030. What are the opportunities for combining, you know, this big systems thinking about energy and transport with the social issues and the political issues that are happening right alongside it? Who's going to take that one? Tough question. Oh, you're not shy. Go on. Uh, look, okay, I'll have a, I'll have a first go. Um, look, I think there is a real opportunity to get some of the some of the social justice issues right, and I think for lower income households, some of the support options we would have in terms of procurement are really worth making sure we get right. I think where we cite assets, you know, uh, the sort of requirement for a much more sensitive and deeper community engagement and Ultimately, when we think about the scale that we're going to need to go all the way to 2050, we're going to have to start sharing more value of, uh, around these energy projects with local communities. You know, in the past, you know, I'm an ex-developer. We used to develop projects so as we would negotiate with the community in order not to be stopped. There's so much involved in net zero. We have to have a new approach, which is having the community right beside you, right behind you as partners. And I think you know, if we can if we can get that instilled in these early years of the transition, it will stand us in really good stead. 
Any other contributions on that yet? Go on. Obviously, the very recent challenges we've got in the energy supply, you know, and the cost of energy. Um, one of the things that we really can't lose here is energy. There's energy security, but there's also the sustainability and the zero, you know, zero emission, zero carbon uh, future we want to have. We've got to hold on to both of those. And, and, you know, getting to a point where we can drive to lower and lower cost and more stable energy costs in the future has, has got to be incredibly beneficial for everybody. But of course, energy prices impact the lower income groups much more. And, and so if we can use this as an opportunity to build out a, you know, a no, low carbon, zero carbon future energy sources that are much more uh, predictable in costs uh, in the future, that's got to be something we've got to try and hang on to. So I'll just, just add that. Yeah, maybe just quickly. Um, I think there are real opportunities here. Um, we we spend an awful lot of money here in the UK on curtailing energy and uh, issues around grid constraints. So actually, I think there are a lot of the concepts, the things that we're talking about here could actually reduce the amount that we spend on those things. At the moment, actually, you look at a lot of the forecasts, so that's just only forecast to increase more in the future. Ultimately, these costs are socialised onto every customer's bill. Um, so actually, Delivering some of the concepts, the things that we're talking about could bring bills down for everyone. I think we're also seeing, um, have the potential to see some very interesting community models. Um, Octopus Energy actually owns a couple of onshore wind turbines. Uh, in the UK, we have something called the Fan Club. So you can join Fan Club 1 or Fan Club 2, depending on whether you live geographically close to one of those two turbines. Um, if you do, then you get uh, a lower rate on your unit cost of energy when the wind speed exceeds a, a certain amount. So, you know, I think that's very interesting as well. The other thing I would say, though, is I think these, these issues of sort of justice and equity are, are very live issues. And I think they're ones that uh, we will really need to, to address head on as we start to see more use of household level distributed energy resources within the future energy system. At the moment, we have markets and mechanisms that are enable utility scale facilities to participate in power markets. So, for instance, utility scale battery storage facilities. Um, we could have an equivalent by aggregating households so they could provide um, similar services within the, the power system. But we don't yet have markets or protections or mechanisms that really attempt to discuss uh, or, or to think about what the sort of rights and responsibilities would be in that kind of market. So how do we make sure that an individual householder might be rewarded or compensated in the same way as a utility uh, scale provider? And how do we similarly set out the other side of that coin? So what are their rights, but also what are their responsibilities if they're going to be part of that system? I've seen some interesting work, early work come out uh, from some academics in Australia on this point, uh, a paper called, I think, just DER, Bill of Rights and Responsibilities. It is not a draft bill. It is a discussion paper to start a debate. And I think um, these sorts of topics are, are um, very important topics for the next decade or so. Okay, right. Let's get to audience questions. Audience, just as a reminder, you there's a button somewhere that says Q&A on it. Do find that. And remember to press send after you typed your question. I didn't say that before. It's very important that you press send. So we're going to deal with a big group of questions together, which is that we have had a lot of questions about individuals and the cost of heating. And this is obviously very relevant, I mean, especially in the UK here at the moment, but but it's not just a, a UK issue. You know, it's caused by bigger global factors. But when it comes to individuals and the cost of heating and affording things like a heat pump or insulation, like the money's got to come from somewhere and there's already a cost of living crisis 
And, you know, you can see the average person on the street going, well, you know, I think this is all great, but I can't afford, you know, I, I, it's not like I've got spare money sitting around to to afford these big changes. How do we, what do we do about that? Like what, I mean, it's it's very easy to state the problem. What What are the solutions for individuals specifically thinking about here? I, I, I mean, I could really sort of repeat what I said earlier, which is I think grants and subsidies are important to stimulate markets um, and to crowd in private investments, de-risk private investments. Um, but also I, I talked earlier about finance models, finance mechanisms. Um, I, I know there are mortgage lenders here in the UK who would love to find um, models that, that work for them so that you know, pe- when people are ba- maybe buying a house or moving house, they can also complete these measures. They can make their home more energy efficient. They can add these low carbon technologies. I comforted in some ways that I know a lot of discussions are going on on these particular topics, but I, I think that is really the, the crux of the issue here is, is finding models of finance that are going to work for the majority. And I guess one of the difficult things here, I mean, and you sort of you sort of did both there, which was very nice, is that, it, that these words like finance kind of, you know, it's a sort of word and the ordinary person on the street is like, but what about my problem here? You know, and actually, I think those examples of, OK, if you're going to remortgage or, you know, renew your mortgage or something, here is a thing that goes alongside that. Like it, there's a language thing there, which actually leads into one of the other uh, questions we've had from Twitter, which is that a lot of the metrics used to measure targets are hard to understand and implement. And so the question is, are we in danger of kind of greenwashing climate change ambitions because there's some number or there's some other number and a company says they're doing something and here's some number. And, you know, people haven't got the time to dig into that and work out whether this number is better than another number. What's the risk here of companies just kind of spouting measures that are hard to understand and it just... Or it all just sort of fades into nothingness because everyone's spouting meaningless numbers. Enormous. I mean, this is going on everywhere, every day, from big financial institutions to, you know, energy companies. You know, I think we just don't have a good, simple system around ESG reporting that would force everyone to be transparent and consistent and authentic. So whoever asked that question, is it's a critical question and there's been quite a lot written about it recently. So, you know, I think a lot of people are focused on it, but it, it's disturbing the way it's happening right now. And it's distracting. And, and Jonathan, what do you see in this from the, you know, from the Cummings point of view? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree. There's, there's an awful lot being written about this. I mean, the way I would say is I think businesses have a responsibility to be as specific as they possibly can in terms of what it is they're doing to actually reduce this. So get down to actual hard specific metrics about their products, their facilities and, and how are they how are they actually what are they actually doing? You know, how much water are they really saving? You know, what what is you know the amount of CO2 they're saving by installing, you know, green energy projects at their facilities, publishing really clear data about the products that they are they are selling and, and how they are manufactured and, and getting really specific about you know, the scope three GHG targets, which includes everything, the supply chain, the whole aspect of the value chain of how you make a product. And so with incomes, we're trying to, trying to do that and trying to make that really clear through the sustainability reports every year to do that. But it's like anything, it's it's clarity. And, and of course, it's still a challenge about how do I look at Cummins and then look at another company and another company and compare, right? How, how do I know? And so I, I tend to agree. I, I think, you know, because it, it is a challenge to get that consistency but businesses, I think, have a real responsibility to be as clear as possible about absolute targets and, and most importantly, how they are actually going about them is, is what I would say. 
Okay, well, let's pick up on that then. So since you're here as the representative of Cummins, what, what, are you, what projects are you working on you know, that, that you can talk about? Tell, tell us about the things that are coming along the line that you, know, you can be a little bit specific about that you know, are actually happening. Yeah, so, so more broadly, so we could talk about product and, and facilities. You know. In our products, you know, we are actively working on and launching engine products that are our next level of engine products will be 7% more fuel economy um, have better fuel economy than the products we launched today. So that is, you know, we're putting that num- number out, we're launching those products and we're stating them. So that is tangible. We can say as customers use those products, the impact of CO2 emissions from those products as a result of a result of doing that. We've also, we are clear, we're you know, putting in um, green energy, energy sources into our plants. I talked earlier about that solar um, plant that we put the solar facility that we've put in in India, which has been able to reduce the amount of CO2 that we produce through our operations. You know, we are working with what we call Cummins Waterworks, where we are actively focused on projects to increase access of clean water to um, a larger number of people than we would have up to 20 million people we want to get to the point of providing clean water for. So there's projects like that that are really clear and and we state and we show and we we you know we we put out there um, to 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 demonstrate what we are working on to to really meet our ESG goals and targets through 2030 and, and you know beyond to 2050. Just as a couple of examples. Cool, thank you. Um, okay, so let's get. So, so there's a question here, but I, I'd like to broaden it out a bit more to the general question of incentives. And th- so this question is from Colin Norris, uh, and the question is: What policies should governments implement to drive the market towards net zero? You know, there's things like carbon pricing, banning of technology, mandating storage, cap and trade, and you know, we all know there's this big discussion that's going on about how you make these incentives work. So when it comes to carbon and decarbonisation specifically. What what are your views on which of these things, what models are actually going to work if governments put them in place? And is there a risk that if you have different governments make different decisions about how they're going to incentivise decarbonisation, is that a risk all by itself? Do we all need to agree? I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name who asked the question, but you, you listed a range of measures. Now, uh, in my experience, governments love to talk about packages of measures, but uh, I think there's something behind that in that um, you're very unlikely to have just one particular policy or one particular measure that achieves the outcome you're looking for. So I think um, in answer to your original question, I think it's probably all of the above, plus probably some additional stuff in there as well. I think from the kind of the the energy point of view, and particularly, uh, you know, we focus a lot on residential customers, the, the retail uh, side of things. I think we need to see a, a really significant retail revolution. So I've talked a lot about households adopting um, some of these low carbon technologies, but I, I, I think also just far more innovation on the retail side in terms of things like rates and plans. We have a number of different tariffs in, within the Octopus Energy Group that are designed to help people use energy when it's, uh, when it's cheaper. So um, if you have an electric vehicle, for instance, maybe to, to intelligently charge that vehicle at times when the grid is both greener and the electricity you're using is, is cheaper, I think there's more work to be done on just kind of price discovery. So what does that actually look like? What are the types of incentives we can design. Some of them will undoubtedly be related to to price. 
But actually, some of them might not. Um, you know, there, there may well be customers who are willing to do things differently just in the interest of the environment. Um, so I think just having a better picture of all of this and then thinking about how we can build it into, particularly into retail innovation, it's going to be really important. And the availability and the sort of abundance of, of data is going to be very important to understand that. I think the other piece I'd say about legislation is, is around its consistency. I think consistency and, and building a framework and tough and enforceable, you know, I, I think that's important that companies and businesses and others understand what they have to achieve and where they're moving to and have that level of consistency and be able to build from that and have that enforceable. And when I say consistency, it, it's also very beneficial to have levels of consistency globally as well. You know, as you think about products that get shipped around the world and, and we're driving consistent standards, um, that I think is also important to help drive innovation and, and and product development that that helps accelerate adoption of products you know that enables us to start to build at scale because once you can start to develop products you know that meet legislation that meet tough enforceable legislation build them at scale once you start building scale costs start coming down adoption rates start going up and you start to then build this adoption rate which is you know, has this virtuous circle of starting to then move things faster as you know as we head towards um, adoption of zero carbon solutions. Well, it really highlights what Lucy was saying before about decisions we make now matter, because if you set a standard early, everyone knows what it is and you can all just get on with it. Whereas if you have a sort of VHS Betamax debate for 10 years, it's it's time consuming and you can't afford the extra, you know, uh, the 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 resource that goes into that. The other thing I'd say, though, is I think governments need to be setting, um, you know, legislation around what needs to be achieved, but be more technology agnostic. Well, what I mean by that is don't the government shouldn't be there prescribing the solution. They should provide the framework and what's required to meet the to meet the requirements and the goals and let industry and business, you know, innovate to come up with the right technology solutions to meet those requirements. It'd be much more technology agnostic. Because, of course, there may be technologies no one's thought of yet that could do uh, quite a lot of the heavy lifting. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. So let, let business do what business does well and actually drive the economy through innovation by by setting really tough enforceable targets but don't set them to you know to exclude technologies that perhaps we haven't thought of today or perhaps aren't in favor today or whatever that may be because innovation is happening everywhere in this space okay so there's a question here from twitter and i think this is a sort of background worry so i'm dropping it in because it's not directly relevant to all of the discussion we've had but i think it's something that is on people's minds so i think we should address it um it's it's anonymous but it says what can be done about countries which don't put significant effort into achieving these goals and i think really the question is here if we accept that this is a global effort, but different global players have different capacity or will to act, you know, how do we balance this out? Do, should we all just do the most we can do and not worry too much about everyone else? Or, or do we need to, you know, how do we do this and find it fair in the right kind of way? Because obviously developing countries, for example, are much less able to develop technologies and the problem wasn't theirs in the first place. So how do we think about these different global players all making their fair contribution, but then working out what fair means? It's a, it's a great question. I, I think really, I mean, this this kind of this is all this is what COP is all about, right? So it's getting all of these countries around the table, and every country has is in a different position, has different resources available, has different motivations. Every country feels the impacts of the effects of climate change differently. So I think really uh, it is about getting everyone around the table and um, trying to find those consensus points. Um, 
this is certainly not easy. Nothing to do with international diplomacy is, is, is ever easy. But I think we can look at things like the Paris Agreement and like the Glasgow Agreement and say that actually this process has been effective historically and uh, it should continue to be the vehicle through which we do really sort of thrash out these differences and maybe thrash out these different levels of inclination to act and to make sure that we are um, coming to agreements internationally. Well, I think that's a great place to finish. COP is coming up in just a few days now. So, you know, hopefully this will be discussed much more in in the media and outside. So because we are out of time, we're going to have to finish. So um, I think we lost Chris towards the end there, which is a great shame. But in his absence, we will thank Chris as well as Lucy and Jonathan. Uh, Thank you to everyone who listened in or who participated to Intelligence Squared for organising this, to Cummins for being part of that organisation and sponsoring it and of course the next event is coming up uh, in a couple of weeks and that will we, for there we will be discussing the next bit along which is between 2030 and 2050 to, ex- to, to examine what happens when we're sort of really getting into the stride of this uh, getting into our stride uh, and, and what we need to prepare for that so if you'd like to attend that one do visit intelligencesquare.com uh, you can sign up to their newsletter to make sure you get notifications or about it or you can just register for the next event And for more information about Cummins, you can just visit Cummins.com. And that's it for today. So I hope you've all, we've left you all with some uh, food for thought for your afternoon or your morning, whatever comes next. Um, So thank you very much, everyone. And from us here at Intelligence Squared, goodbye. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.